0: Welcome to the Check Your Head Podcast, the podcast where notable musicians and experts come and share their stories and solutions for mental health and wellness. I'm your host, Mari Fong, a music journalist and life coach for musicians, and today I'm excited to share an up-and-coming alternative rock band who formed in 2017 and by 2018 was already on the lineup for the Rock on the Range Music Festival in their hometown of Columbus, Ohio. They shared the stage with bands like Tool, Alice in Chains, Godsmack, Greta Van Fleet, Stone Sour, and more, actually missing their high school graduation to play the festival. This band is Pray for Sleep, and today we have musician and singer Grant DeCrane to share his story of sexual abuse and the aftermath, along with the solutions he's used for healing and recovery. Pray for Sleep also rocks for mental health, being advocates for teen suicide prevention, reinforcing that it's okay not to be okay, with their screenback program, created by the band, which Grant will also share with us. We'll close the episode with a clip of their latest single, Outpatient, from their album, Behind Our Eyes. Next up, our mental health expert not only has the smarts, but she has the voice. I first met Katherine Petzold, also known as Kat Parsons, as a singer, songwriter, and musician in Los Angeles. Since then, Katherine has added psychotherapists to her resume— A counselor specializing in trauma and has a real world understanding of the challenges of being a musician as well as treating others after sexual abuse. A really good match for today's episode. So let's start with Grant Decrane's story of rock band Pray for Sleep.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be a part of this. Well,
0: you know, one thing that you said I was really interested in is that you've dealt with depression, anxiety, panic attacks, and self-harm. And I was wondering, at what point did you first notice you were having some mental health issues?
1: So for me, my mental health struggles started pretty young, around the age of 11. I started having depressive episodes um, and and panic attacks. The catalyst for me was I, I suffered sexual abuse when I was 11, and that kind of was the triggering point for me. Ever since then, I've had bouts and and seasons of depression um, and anxiety. So, yeah, it it kind of showed up at at an early age for me. So kind of identifying that took a while because it was, you know, it was the lack of energy and kind of disinterest in, in things that I used to really enjoy kind of started to show up. And it was it took a while to kind of figure out what was going on and like where my head was at for me.
0: All right, so you had a, a personal trauma that sort of triggered all of that, which is completely understandable. Was there any mental health issues in your family, or do you think it's really more tied to your trauma?
1: For me, it's definitely kind of a mix of the two. I know my whole family has had um, a history of, of anxiety going back to like my grandparents on both sides of my family. Both of my parents have had struggles with anxiety specifically and occasional like seasonal depression and things like that. But then I'm, I mean, the, the trauma definitely kind of kicked things off as well. So I think the, me- the mesh of the two kind of uh, wove together to get that started.
0: Well, you know, I'm really sorry to hear about your trauma, but it's a trauma that a lot of people end up having in their life, which is really unfortunate. I mean, I can't imagine what you went through. But when you did go through that, sometimes it, it takes time to process. Did you ever end up talking with somebody about it? Or, or how did you first start to deal with that?
1: Um, I've been through a lot of counseling and therapy sessions since then. started shortly after it happened. So from the age of 12, I've been seeing uh, counselors and similar things like that off and on through the years. Early on, it was very focused on, on dealing with and processing the trauma and kind of digging out what that uh, caused in me and like, the different side effects of that. And working through that and processing that with professional help was uh, something that took a long time for sure. I mean, it's still something that, that I deal with and struggle with off and on, just it'll pop up in, in weird and different ways. But and then I continued on with the counseling afterwards, just as kind of general health and maintenance for my mental health and, and well-being. Dealing with the, the depression and anxiety after that, instead of you know just focusing on the trauma, working on more kind of a broad scope of, of emotions and, and mental health stuff like that.
0: You said that sometimes the trauma can show up in sort of weird ways, like unexpected ways. What are some examples of that?
1: There are a handful of different things. One of the Strangest things is, you know, the the name of the, the abuser kind of can be a weird trigger where it's like just hearing somebody with the same name or, or even seeing somebody with a similar appearance can bring up a lot of, of emotions and stuff where it's like, you know, it's not something I'm always prepared to deal with. So it can be very kind of like it can catch me off guard occasionally where it's like, wow, I wasn't expecting to feel that way when I woke up this morning. That's really one of the biggest things.
0: You're really brave to be going through this and to be getting the help that you need. I know that oftentimes there's a lot of trial and error that goes through finding the right solution or even the right therapist to talk with. But first, usually when something like this happens, you tell somebody or maybe you talk with somebody else about it, maybe to get their advice. What was your experience when you first talked to somebody about this?
1: Experience. For me, the, the person that I went to was my parents. My mom and dad have always been very supportive and very open about emotions and dealing with talking to me about things like that. So I've, I went to them, and they were the ones that got me connected with a therapist and a counselor and helped me kind of process things at the beginning to the best of their ability. And then realizing that it's something that would probably take professional help and helping me to make those connections and, and find those resources. So I was very fortunate to have a lot of support around me straight from the get-go, really. Didn't really have any real experiences with rejection or, or kind of dismissive behavior towards what I was dealing with. So I was very fortunate with that.
0: All right. Well, that's good. I also know that sometimes you go through the symptoms of depression and anxiety before you talk about it. What were some of the symptoms that you were experiencing that kind of made you think, "Oh gosh, you know, I might need some help with this," or "or this is really affecting my relationships," or "this is really affecting my music"? Because oftentimes mood disorders can really get you super tired or, or make you feel yeah. so down, that you don't want to do anything. I mean, what was your experience there?
1: For me, a lot of a lot of my symptoms that I dealt with, uh, there was a lot of like low energy, just, you know, not really having the energy to get up and do anything on a regular basis. I would have days where I just like, it was really hard to get out of bed. And it would just be like, that was how my day went was like, trying to convince myself, like to get up and and to try to do something, a lot of loss of interest in things that I used to really enjoy. Like I I love to play video games and, and read books and like, watch movies. And there were periods of time where it was like, Everything that I tried to do, I just had no interest in it, and it didn't feel fulfilling the same way it used to. I think for me, really, music was one of the only things that consistently was something that I always enjoyed. I've never really had my experience with with my depression. Music never really lost that kind of feeling for me, so that was kind of a safe haven that I could always go to. When everything else kind of felt dull and uh, uninteresting, I could always go back to music, and I could I could go play guitar or just listen to um, some of my favorite musicians, and that, that always was something that was was there and that I enjoyed. And then on the side of anxiety, there would be times where I would just latch on to one small worry or fear, and it would spiral out of control, and I would end up in, in a panic attack, you know, shortness of breath and all of those different side effects. And it ended up getting to a point where I was having fairly regular panic attacks and that was when I went to my parents and was started talking about, you know, counseling and, and different things like that.
0: Were there certain things that kind of triggered your panic attacks?
1: Yeah, there were there was a little bit of both. There would be times where it was just like for whatever reason I would get very anxious about pretty much nothing at all. And there were also a lot of times for me one of the pretty consistent triggers was I struggled with a lot of image issues and like had a long period of time where I really just hated myself. And there was a lot of regrets around the trauma and like things that I had dealt with in the past that I blamed myself for. And those things would kind of creep in and that that would kind of send me down that sort of spiral. So there was was a mix of the two.
0: You know, oftentimes when things happen to us, we we tend to think, oh, my gosh, what did I do? You you know, you start to take responsibility for for someone else's actions that really shouldn't be attributed to you. But it's important to know about because I'm sure there is a lot of guilt that happens. How did you end up resolving, you know, those questions that you had about
1: the past? For me, that was a lot of what my counseling looked like, um, was talking to the counselor about you know digging up and identifying those things that I blamed myself for or that I thought were my fault and having someone to kind of have a conversation with that was able to be like hey from where I'm standing that's not like that is beyond your control you can't control the way other people are going to act or, or how they're going to feel and kind of talking through that and and over time accepting that you know they're the past is the past and i can't go back and change what happened or or anything like that and accepting that you know it it's not something that i can really blame myself for given like the circumstances and the position that i was in it was outside of my control or or i did what i could and things just you know didn't work out the way that i would have hoped but that's okay and i can grow and learn from that so yeah that was a large portion of of my early counseling um uh, was digging into that those feelings of like Rather than just saying, I'm unhappy with where I'm at, going, okay, well, why is that? And then digging into, oh, it's actually because I blame myself for what happened. And I I am holding that, that guilt against myself. And working on that, yeah, was a process.
0: I'm sure it was. You know, at such a young age, it's so hard to even know what's going on. And then, you know, to have to carry any kind of guilt, it's a heavy burden. And so I'm glad that you went through the counseling to start to let that go, you know, and let that go. And at that age, you know, we're completely unprepared uh, for anything like that. Yeah. Now you said you had panic attacks. And as a performer, I'm sure that's something that you have to deal with because, you know, performing on stage takes a lot of bravery. And sometimes you may not know when those panic attacks can, can happen, What have you learned as far as how to to deal with those?
1: For me, like dealing with my panic attacks and things, a lot of it was breathing exercises were a big focus for me. And it was something that actually worked very well for me. That I know a lot of people try like breathing exercises and things and it just doesn't work for them. But for me, it was, you know, just like slow meditative breathing when I feel my anxiety ramping up actually is really helpful for me makes a huge difference in the way that I'm feeling. I think a lot of my experience with learning to cope with that has been identifying as early on as I can when my anxiety is starting to ramp up and when I'm approaching that that spiraling thought process that kind of pushes me over the edge and identifying that as early on as I can, whether it's just like I notice that my heart rate is up for no reason or I'm, I'm starting to think in, in circles about different things that I'm worried about. So identifying that and then kind of finding ways to get myself out of my head, really. Whether it's like I just go and scribble on a piece of paper for a while or I, I give my hands something to do. It gives me something else to focus on rather than, than my thoughts and, and that um falling into that, that spiral of thought. So I think between those two things, those are my two go-tos or either fiddling with something, finding something to do with my hands and, or meditative breathing and that kind of stuff has worked really well for me.
0: You know, that's one thing I'm glad you brought up because I think what sometimes when people think of counseling or therapy, they think of talk therapy, which Mm -hmm. is really great. But there's also a lot of techniques that you learn, you know, coping skills and other kinds of therapies that help you work through things, you know, when you come across them. And a lot of it takes practice, I would think, of finding out what exactly is going to work for you.
1: Absolutely. There's definitely a lot of of trial and error in in those counseling sessions. And it's, you know, the counselor saying, "Okay, so next time you feel that, why don't we try this and see if that helps? And if it doesn't, we'll think of the next thing to try. Um, And just being willing to work on that and give different things a shot. You know, some counselors are kind of weird, man. They'll give you some some weird stuff to try. But, you know, just being willing to do it was really helpful. I, I mean, at first I was very skeptical about, you know, how can just breathing slowly and focusing on my breathing, how's that going to help me? But it, it worked. And I was like, wow, I'm really glad that I gave that a shot because if I didn't, I don't know what I'd be doing.
0: Yeah. I think that's important to note because sometimes things do kind of sound so different that you think, how can that ever work for me? I know like when I was going through some struggles, I didn't want to go to a support group. That was like the last thing I wanted to do, but I was so surprised at how many people were able to share their experience and, and help me in that way. You know, not only give me yeah. ideas and different referrals, but also just being in a place where other people understood what was going on with me. And, you know, being a younger adult, and being in music. I mean, there are so many fans and so many other musicians that are going through the same kind of things that you're going through. You know, one thing that you mentioned was Mm self-harm. And I know sometimes uh, that can happen with depression or the mood disorders. What were some of the things that you were going through with with self-harm?
1: For me, there was a mix of things that kind of led there. Part of it was I I did, I struggled with a lot of image issues, a lot of self-loathing and, you know, things that kind of come with that, holding that guilt and that shame about things that had happened in the past. And I think at at points in time, there were parts of me that thought of it as some sort of self-punishment or something weird like that. And then there were other times where it kind of became an unhealthy coping mechanism to deal with my anxiety. I know before I got into all of the, the counseling and the, the therapy, it was something that I kind of defaulted to when I felt like I was um, going to have a panic attack because it was something that pulled me out of my head and it gave me something else to focus on besides my thoughts, which would not, I'm not condoning or, or recommending self-harm at all. It, it was something that i kind of stumbled upon by accident and found that I thought it helped, but it very quickly became very destructive and to the point where I was, I felt very out of control with the way I was uh, acting.
0: So what the self-harm, was that something that you talked to anybody about or was that something that was discovered by someone else?
1: No, it was, I, I did talk to, I talked to counselors when I was going through all the counseling for the depression and anxiety, that was something that I talked to the counselor about and and they helped me work through. And it was uh, a very similar process to dealing with the anxiety, um, a little bit different because it, it grew almost into an addiction or, or a habit that I fell into. So rather than being episodic the way the anxiety and panic attacks were, it was identifying things that were triggers for feeling like I wanted to self-harm and identifying those, as well as being able to catch myself when I would be falling into that thought process and giving myself something else to do instead. At the start, it was if I felt like I wanted to to cut or whatever, it was like, well, instead, why don't you like grab a pen and just draw some, some circles and scribble, like do something with your hands, but make it like, so rather than just trying to stop and say, I'm not going to do anything, giving myself something that had almost a similar tactile feel, but making it less destructive and and less harmful, like just drawing on a piece of paper for a while, or journaling, or different things like that, were kind of, you know, a similar process to the anxiety. It was a lot of trial and error, and it was like, okay, if I do this, do I feel better, or do I just spend 10 minutes doing that and then end up in the same spot?
0: Well, I'm glad you found a healthier solution, but it's good to know your thought process with that. Because I do know that people can go there, you know you talked a lot about therapy and counseling, which is great, but there's also medication and things like that. Is that anything that you've tried, mm-hmm. and what was that experience like?
1: Yeah, I was on antidepressants for a couple of years i went I went through a few different types of antidepressants throughout um, high school mostly and then I stayed on medication until last year I think I stopped um, because I felt like I was in a better headspace but yeah absolutely I with my counseling and, and the therapy and everything it got to a point where I was like I had addressed my trauma and I had gone through the process and working that out and I was talking about my depression and anxiety but things weren't really getting better necessarily so it got to the point where i was like okay i don't think this is necessarily tied to something i need to process at the moment this is just something that i feel like i should like medication might be the logical next step for how i'm feeling and what i'm dealing with so yeah it's a similar process again where it's lots of trial and error i started on one and was on that for a few months and nothing really changed so i started on a different one and then was on one of those for like two years. And then at some point, you know, my body adjusted to the way that I was medicating and kind of slipped back out to where the medication was less effective. So I switched over again to a new one. And it was lots of trial and error and monitoring my mental state and where I was at and seeing what effect different medications had. Mm -hmm. So
0: that was helpful overall?
1: Mm -hmm, Absolutely. Yeah, for a long time. i the medication was very helpful. It definitely kind of curbed my anxiety a lot and helped me kind of mellow that down without falling into a real depressive state. The only, I mean, the reason I stopped was it got to a point after a while where I felt like, you know, the medication had kind of become a numbing agent almost, which is, you know, that's a danger with antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications. If you're on the wrong one or the wrong dosage, it can very much just become like a system shut down emotionally. And I think after I was on the one medication for, I think, two years, and at the, towards the end of it, I was like, I can tell I've kind of shut down. So working with my counselor and prescriber to work my way off of that and see, you know, making sure that that didn't just like cause a spike in anxiety or throw me into a, a very uh, depressive episode. It's so, like waning off of that to see if that was part of why I felt so shut down. It was a a long process of, you know, working on those medications and and trying to find a balance between helps me not feel depressed, but also doesn't make me feel like I'm completely shut down and emotionally dead.
0: Well, it's good to know, first of all, that antidepressants sometimes take uh, some time to work. Mm -hmm. So to give it that time to try it out. It's difficult, though, because when you're in a depression, every day is tough. So yeah. to be persistent you've got to be really strong to you know go through that trial and error and then also it could be something good for a period of your life and of course you know you talk to your doctor about this and if you decide that you want to get off the medication and it's approved by your doctor then going through that tapering you know that slow tapering down is also really important so that your body adjusts to getting off the medication
1: yeah, absolutely. I know for me, it was a, it's a long process getting on to the medication and getting off of it and finding the dosage that's right. But yeah, it's really important to be very patient um, and consistent with that. I know that was something my, my dad actually struggled with. He was on anti-anxiety meds for a while, and then he... Got to a point where he was like, I don't feel like I need to be on this anymore. And, and instead of doing like the tapering, he just kind of stopped taking the medication and ended up being very sick for like a couple of weeks. So, yeah, it's really important to listen to your doctor and, and uh, follow those instructions to a T because it's, you know, it's chemicals in your body and that stuff can really mess things up really quickly if you're not careful with the way that you handle it.
0: Yes, absolutely. Okay, hey, you know, you have a song, it's called Outpatient, that mm-hmm. I really enjoyed. And you said it was very personal to you. And you already talked about your trauma, mm-hmm. which is part of, of the song. Yep. Uh, but if the song is called Outpatient, does that mean that you've been an inpatient at some time in your life?
1: I have not. The song is, it's about the struggles of dealing with sexual abuse and assault. And when we were writing it, spoke to I spoke with some friends of mine and people that I've met that have dealt with similar situations and, and the same kind of trauma. And the outpatient actually was inspired by one of them who had been in some inpatient care and talked about what that experience was like. So it's not my personal experience, but doing research and talking to people that have had similar experiences and, and what that was like for them. And kind of the feelings and emotions that got tied into that and what they dealt with was where we came up with that.
0: Now, I can understand like with your mental health journey, why you'd want to be an advocate because you know, that's a tough road. And oftentimes you feel like you're alone, although you're not alone, because you you do find out there there are so many other fans and, and musicians that are going through something similar to you. But as a band, your band Pray for Sleep, how did you decide to be an advocate as a band for mental health?
1: It was something that actually came up very early in the formation of the band, talking about, you know, we've all had similar experiences with depression or anxiety or um, substance abuse that we dealt with. And a unifying factor that helped us all get through our personal struggles with mental health was music, whether it was in a performance setting or just playing for ourselves or listening to other music that we like. Something that we all found was music was a huge part of our recovery and and of our our coping and processing methods. And so we sat down and we talked about, you know as a band, what do we want to be? What do we want to do? And it, it was very clear to all of us from the beginning that we wanted to be more than just a band that went out and played songs. We wanted to have a mission and we wanted to have a message and we very quickly came to, well, something that's been really important to all of us is mental health. And that's something that we want to focus on. And we feel like, you know, it needs to be focused on more and in our society, using music as a tool to kind of spread that message was something that we all were able to get behind and support really rather easily. So it kind of, you know, it's been something that the band has wanted to do and has worked on since the beginning, whether it's through our lyrics or or the messaging on our social media or what we're doing in our free time. Um, it's just been something that has always been very front and center for us.
0: Well, tell us about the Screenback program, because that, that's sort of your, your baby when it comes to uh, being an advocate.
1: Yeah, so we've it's, it's taken on a few different forms as we've worked on it. We ha- we've had the opportunity actually to go to a few schools here in the central Ohio area and put on a rock show for the kids during an assembly period and then talk about our personal experiences with mental health and to then provide them with some resources. We actually partnered with Nationwide Children's Hospital and they're on our sleeves campaign that they launched two years ago which is a youth-focused mental health awareness program that they've been working on for the past few years. They've been kind enough to give us a bunch of resources like pamphlets and handouts that we take into the schools and we give to the students and to the teachers and the, the school counselors and different people that we work with through that. So going in, talking about what we dealt with, encouraging the kids to talk to each other and to talk to their school counselor and then giving them some resources that have you know free online resources like helplines and different things like that. We also recently started doing our own little interview format thing that we call Screen Back Sundays on our social medias. We have talked to a few people um, in, in these similar Zoom-style interviews, and we just find friends in the music industry that have a similar um, mindset and want to help raise awareness, and we do quick little interviews where we ask them to talk about their personal experiences and why mental health awareness is important to them and then putting that out on our social media is just kind of trying to you know find fun and and interesting ways to raise awareness and get as many people involved as we can yeah and those are things that we've been working on for a while it's fun to see people's reactions to it and and um, what people think about it as well as just seeing people um I know for for some of the shows that we've done, you know, talking about what we've dealt with and then talking to fans and friends afterwards, that seeing people affected by our our music and our our lyrics and our messaging has been one of the most satisfying things about all of this. To have somebody come up and say, hey, your story is my story. And to hear somebody talk about that is really encouraging. has been one of the, it's a really like indescribable feeling to know that, you know, going through stuff is always hard, but to know that stepping up and having the courage to talk about it, seeing that that actually helps somebody else process and feel like they're not alone. That's a really good feeling.
0: Well, I'm also glad that you're hitting, you're hitting fans at an age where they really need to understand what's going on. Because, you know, like you said, you started having some issues at 11, 11 and 12. And that's often the time where kids start having issues and it's hard to understand what's going on. And it's kind of scary, you know, because you don't know what's happening and why it's happening. And just to open up that discussion can help others get help. And just to be persistent in finding the help, which is part of our mission is to provide solutions And I'm glad that you talked about your solutions, which for you was counseling and therapy and being able to have family and friends support you and listen to what was going on with you. On the checkyourheadpodcast.com website, we have a list of organizations, with different apps and telehealth where people can find help, you know, whether it's depression, anxiety, panic attacks, bipolar, and other mood disorders. So I will be sure to include your program onto our website because it's uh, so important. I'm sure there's other high schools that would love to have you perform. Although right now we're in we're in lockdown, <laughs> we're yeah. going through this pandemic. What are some ways that you found you're still able to connect with your fans during our restrictions?
1: Yeah. So a lot of it has been, you know, making sure we're staying active on social media, whether it's, you know, just commenting back to fans and talking on our posts, you know, making sure that people know that we we still care about you guys. You know, we're missing live performances and everything, but still trying to stay connected with fans through social media and whether it's live streaming every now and then on our Instagram or just chatting with fans in the comment section on different posts and um, things like that. And we also had the opportunity to do a couple of outdoor shows that we put together with a local towing company. To let us rent. flatbed truck from them for a day Um, and we set up all of our stuff with a generator on the back of a flatbed truck parked in front of a friend's house in the neighborhood and invited people to come out and enjoy some live music while social distancing and all of that stuff which was a lot of fun we had to do that a couple of times last month which were really cool but just you know trying to find creative ways to kind of stay connected and and stay involved with what we're doing.
0: I'm glad that you found a solution. I mean, as far as being able to perform your music, and I did see it, it's called Rock on the Road Tour, Yeah, (laughs) the flatbed truck, and you also have your album called Behind Our Eyes, and a lot of your music, you know, talks about personal struggle and, you know, talks about these uh, feelings that oftentimes we don't express because maybe we're afraid to, or we don't want to, you know, talk about. These things, but I'm glad that you're being open and you're talking about it, and you're really getting to the heart of not only musicians but your fans that uh, might be, you know, going through some of the same things. So, thank you so much for that. I really applaud you for what you're doing.
1: Thank you. Yeah, yeah. That's always been a big focus for us lyrically is we want to be real with people, and you know, there are definitely times where everything's not okay. And we always encourage people, whether it's at shows or through our Instagram posts or through our, our lyrics, talking about it, what you're dealing with and what you're struggling with is very difficult, but it's very necessary. And, you know, surrounding yourself with people that will support you um, and are willing to listen to you and, and trying to help you um, in any way that they can is huge. Um, it's something that, you know, a lot of people are scared to talk about what they're dealing with, but we always encourage our fans. That's going to be the first step. If you want things to get better, part of the process is talking about it. And, you know, whether it's through the school shows or whatever else we're doing, always encouraging people. Starting the conversation is very hard. And so we always encourage our fans. If, if you see someone or, or notice that you think someone around you is struggling or your friend is, you know, they seem down or whatever, being willing to reach out and be the first person to initiate the conversation can be such a huge help to somebody that is struggling. You know, a lot of people, when you're struggling, reaching out for help seems like one of the hardest things to do, and it's a very hard first step to take. So to have someone kind of extend that hand and be like, "Hey, I'm here if you want to talk. I can see that you're not doing great. Can I help at all?" That can be literally life saving for people that are struggling. So we always encourage that. Those conversations are hard to have, but it's super important, and we see it more and more in our society when people are struggling. If, if no one reaches out and if they're unable to reach out, that's where it gets to the worst. And we don't want to see that happen. So we always encourage, you know, openness with what you're dealing with is, is a huge, huge help to the recovery process for sure.
0: Right, right. Checking in on people and, you know, really honestly asking how they're doing and um, prying a little bit, Right. Getting in their face and and maybe even asking again, because I think sometimes people, you know, give the standard answer, like, oh, I'm doing fine. I'm good. But um, there are things that you can look for, you know, to really know. And even in your gut, you know, you can can figure out if if somebody is going through something difficult. And just that open, honest conversation can be a huge relief to somebody, right? Just to be open and honest to somebody that you trust and that you respect. But is there anything else that you would like to say about mental health or about your band, Pray for Sleep?
1: No. I mean, if you're interested in what we're doing as a band or or checking out our music, check out our website, PrayForSleep.com. There's links to all of what we're doing, as well as if you're looking for um, those kinds of mental health resources, we've got links on our website there. And, yeah, as far as, you know, mental health goes, I would just encourage people, you know, just love one another. Be nice to the people around you. You never know what somebody's going through Um, and a smile and a handshake or a how are you doing and not necessarily accepting a a little brush off of, oh, yeah, I'm fine. You know, that that could be a huge change for somebody. I mean, it could really affect the course of where they're going and what they're dealing with. So you never know how much it could mean to somebody if you're willing to reach out and, and actually genuinely ask them how they're doing and have a conversation with them.
0: Thank you so much, Grant, from Pray for Sleep. You've really been uh, very wise beyond your years. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We're always super excited to get involved with anybody that has a similar mindset and is trying to do the same thing that we're doing. So it was really, uh, really cool to hear from you.
0: Next up, we have mental health expert Catherine Petzold. What's different about Catherine is not only is she a counselor and psychotherapist, but she's also a singer-songwriter and musician, having graced the front covers of magazines like Billboard and Music Connection, and was even featured on MTV. Catherine's unique perspective will give us insight into the challenges often faced by musicians and the different ways to heal from sexual trauma. I first met you as a local musician here in Los Angeles, and when I heard that you became a psychotherapist, I was really excited. What made you want to go into psychotherapy? You
2: know, I don't actually think it's that far of a leap from musician, because at least for me... Connecting with people was such a big part of my satisfaction in music Was being able to share my experiences and find out that other people could relate, that something that I was experiencing is something that someone else could resonate with. I just think performance, writing music, it's all really connecting
0: really kind of fits in with the interview with Grant DeCranes from Pray for Sleep. And I was wondering, when you listened to that interview, what stood out to you most?
2: Well, one, how brave Grant is in sharing his story and how respectful I am of his journey and the meaning that he's made out of it and the courage that he has to share his story with others and connect with others on a very deep level and on a very vulnerable level. Another thing that I really liked was hearing about the resilience that he experienced. Particularly, it sounded like he had some protective factors, like a really supportive family that didn't invalidate or question his experience, but was kind of with him along the whole way. And I think that goes a long way in
0: helping people heal. It does. I mean, sometimes even when people don't understand exactly what you're going through, Just to say that I'm with you and I want to help in whatever way that I can. It helps so much just to hear those words from somebody that you care about, whether it's a friend or family or, or even a stranger.
2: Yeah, I think so much of trauma is overcoming self blame. So when people experience trauma, there is a fight, flight, freeze response that is involuntary, it's just an automatic response when someone feels physically in danger. Most people have the freeze response. And when someone is having a freeze response, they are playing like an animal would play dead. The brain has decided that that's the safest response, but everything in your body is still moving. All of your adrenaline and all of the hormones are kind of shooting through your body while your physical self is staying still in order to preserve your safety. And so a lot of people struggle with, well, why didn't I fight? Or what could I have done differently, or this was my fault. They may not be able to tell the story about what happened because the memory is stored in a different part of your brain. The memory is stored in your body and it's not always stored in the narrative place because every part of you is shutting down to survive. It's really amazing what our brains and bodies do To protect us. So what happens is when someone can't really tell their story, or they just remember pieces of it, then it's really easy to doubt themselves. I know that that for some people, there's a lot of blame about why they didn't do anything, even though their body did the
0: exact thing it was designed to do. You know, Grant talked about self harm. Mm -hmm. He talked about the guilt that he carried from that trauma, and I would think that would be a common emotion as an aftereffect. What are some of the other common emotions that victims have to deal with after a sexual trauma?
2: Self-blame is one of the things that people experience, an intense fear. For some people, it's feelings of betrayal, depending on whom the trauma was perpetrated. Sometimes feeling like your body has betrayed you. Why did I orgasm around something that I didn't want to happen that wasn't okay with me? Why did I not speak up? Why did I kind of freeze? I mean, there's just so many different things that happen for people in trauma that are protective. I mean, it's amazing what our brains and our bodies do to protect us without thought, just kind of automatic protections. For some people, it's not being able to trust myself. So here I thought I was in a safe situation and then it turned out not to be a safe situation. Now I can't trust that I know what a safe situation looks like and therefore everything is dangerous. I have to be hyper vigilant and always be watching out. Shame is a big one. Shame is a really big one. And with some of the clients that I have, many of them don't even know that they've experienced trauma. They didn't realize that what they've experienced wasn't something that was just their fault and normal. I'll hear about rapes or sexual assaults that happened many, many years ago that was all their own shame, their own guilt, their feelings of not enough. It's easy to internalize whatever happens into a message about you versus it being about what happened to me. What does this mean about me? What does this mean about the world? And how can I make some meaning out of this that leads me to a place that is healthy and that I feel empowered. So one of the things I loved about Grant is that he's taken this experience that he's had, which really sucked, and he is channeling it into a way of connecting with people, a way of normalizing and destigmatizing the experience of trauma, of sexual abuse. So a lot of the work in therapy is trying to expand people's window of tolerance, to expand their ability to handle the triggers that come up in life, be able to get present, be able to make meaning of it that doesn't tell a story of feeling like they've failed somehow or to self-blame.
0: You know, another thing that Grant talked about was self-harm, And he mentioned cutting. And I know that sometimes people will do that. What is the psychology behind self-harm?
2: So one of them is taking the emotional pain and giving it a physical location. Sometimes it is hard to verbalize, oh, I'm in so much pain right now. But if I cut myself, it's so easy to see, right? I'm bleeding. This is clear. This is where my pain is it kind of refocuses, it gives us a physical manifestation of the emotional pain and it can refocus you so that that emotional pain is not your focus because now you have a physical wound to deal with. I also think that there are people who use it as a form of punishment to themselves. Like,
0: you know, I'm not good enough. Grant did mention something like that, that he used it as a kind of self-punishment because of the guilt that he was carrying mm-hmm. but he did learn of course that you know self harm is not good it's not a healthy way to express yourself and you know he had to learn coping skills and i'm wondering what are some of the coping skills that someone can learn to deal with all of these emotions that come after a trauma
2: there need to be coping strategies to expand that ability to tolerate the feelings because essentially what we want is for people not to feel afraid of their feelings and afraid of themselves that they can't be trusted that they can't go out because they might get triggered and they have to have, you know, what happens if they don't have the thing that is helpful to them. And so some of the things that Grant talked about are things that I've definitely talked about in my sessions.
0: Okay. You know, we had Johan Swanberg. He was from Record Union. And he did an independent study of 1,500 musicians and found that 73% of them had experienced a mood disorder during their life, whether it's depression, anxiety, panic attacks, ADHD, etc. From your experience as a musician, why do you think musicians have a higher incidence of mental issues?
2: Yeah. I love this question. So the right brain is where creativity is. And it's also where emotion is. If someone is right-brained, it'd be more likely that they would experience intense emotion. I also think what people put themselves through as musicians, what they put their body through, the, the ups and downs, the excitement and rush of going on stage, and then the crash of being off stage, the late night, Inconsistent sleep. If you're touring, the ups and downs of touring, you can't really get into a routine. I remember when I was touring and I would be gone for months and then I'd come home and it'd take me at least two days to figure out who I was, who my friends were, where I lived. Like, I don't remember this life. And then I also think a couple things that people really experience are imposter syndromes. So, this sense of like, this is who everyone thinks I am, but this is not who I think I am. And so how do I make sense of these two different versions of myself? And oftentimes the version that other people think I am is way better than the version that I think I am. And so how do I live up to this version of me? Or how do I keep the act up of being this rocker or whatever persona that someone has developed? And then a constant pressure to reinvent. There's not like you get a number one single and then you're there forever. And then you got to get another number one single or you get a great tour and then it's over and you got to do it again. It's not kind of this, you arrive at the destination and then you can rest.
0: Right, right. There's a lot of uncertainty, right? There's a lot of ups and downs and not knowing what the next chapter is in a musician's career. And there are definitely ebbs and flows in popularity. And that could be hard to deal with. Not only financially, but also on the ego side, right? It's like, wait a second, I just had a number one album last year, and now nobody's coming to the shows. What's going on? I mean, one of the biggest swings I remember is I was picked up by
2: a limousine from MTV and was costuming me and doing my makeup and things like that. And then the next morning, I had to be at Wiener Schnitzel in Palm Springs, which is a hot dog stand, at six thirty a.m. to play a song. And so there's so many huge ups and downs as that I think musicians experience and the gig economy where it is kind of like, what's next? You got to keep hustling.
0: Well, the other thing that when I interview musicians, sometimes I come across this idea and maybe it has to do with imposter syndrome because, you know, rock music has this, tagline, which is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And, you know, there are musicians out there that feel like they need to fit into this whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll image. Their fans might expect that from them. Like, what are you drinking? I'm drinking green tea. That doesn't match up with their image. And so I think some musicians struggle with that.
2: Yeah, definitely. I think that happens a lot. And it's also hard if you're dealing with a substance use disorder and that stuff is always around. And for someone who's coming to see your show, this is a once in a week or once in a month experience. And for the musician, it's once a night. (laughs) And so if you're engaging in sex, drugs, and rock and roll every night, that's going to do something to your body and to your ability to handle all of the uncertainty, all of the changes, all of the just somatic experience of sleeping and eating and interpersonal relationships that that are difficult to keep
0: going. You know, when someone hears about going on tour, just a layperson or a fan, it's like, wow, that sounds like fun. But the truth of the matter is, is that you are leaving your home, which has got everything that you love, right? You're Family, your friends, your dog, your, you know, the place that is sort of your safe space. And to go on a bus with a bunch of people that have different lifestyles. And I mean, there could be loneliness there. And you're eating food on the road. Sometimes it's fast food. You know, most people, they work so they can enjoy the time off after the work.
2: Well, tour buses, if you're lucky, right? Because You know, I remember tours where I was sleeping on people's couches and sleeping on their floors and just
0: kind of scrounging things together to make it work. Right. And, you know, I have to say that the musicians that know what a healthy lifestyle is, maybe even after They've tried that other kind of lifestyle. It takes work. I mean, it takes work to have nutrition on tour, to stay connected with people at home and, you know, to use telehealth or therapy while they're on tour. But it, it definitely has the rewards. I think that's hard, even if you're not on tour. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But what's better than feeling good? I think feeling good about be your better. life and feeling on top of things. But you know, it's, it's a total journey, right? Well, Catherine, thank you so much for all of this information. Is there anything else that you would like to say about musicians, psychotherapy? Just that it's really normal to have
2: a hard time in general and have a hard time in different parts of one's life.
0: And I love that you're normalizing that here. A big thank you to Grant Crane of Pray for Sleep for being our featured musical guest and psychotherapist, Catherine Petzold. For more information on Pray for Sleep, visit prayforsleep.com and on social media, find them at prayforsleepband. For more information on the Screenback program, visit screenback.org and stay tuned for a clip of Pray for Sleep's single, Outpatient, from their latest album, Behind Our Eyes. For more information on Katherine Petzold, visit klptherapy.com and to hear her music, visit catparsons.com. So until next time, be brave, ask for help, and be persistent in finding the mental health that you need. Head Podcast is kindly supported by DBSA San Gabriel Valley, Lemon Tree Studios, and Blue Oak Mastering and Podcasting in Los Angeles. Visit our website at checkyourheadpodcast.com, where you'll find free and affordable resources for mental health, and where you can also support us by donating or subscribing to our Patreon page. Thank you so much for liking and following us on Facebook and Instagram at Check Your Head Podcast. And the Check Your Head podcast is sponsored by 501c3 nonprofit, so all donations are tax-deductible. Thank you so much for listening and for your support.